Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for tonight. We just thank you for the, uh, the chance to gather together. God, we pray that you would open up our hearts as we open up your word and just uh, speak to each and every one of us here tonight. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so Wednesday nights, we're doing a recap of what we're reading through the Bible in a year. If you aren't reading through the Bible with us and you'd like to, there are pamphlets on the back table. If you're watching on Facebook, they're still on the back table. Sorry, you got to show up and get one. Um, But anyways, so last week's reading took us from 2 Samuel 11 to 1 Kings chapter 4, which actually worked out pretty well. It's a nice chunk. Um, Next week will take us through most of 1 Kings. Um, But this week's chunk is really the second half of the life of David, and David's life can be pretty... You can break it down a couple different ways. Um, you know, we talked about last week, David probably has more written about him than anybody except Jesus Christ. And so there's a lot of opportunity to see uh, incredible good in David's life, but also just incredible humanity. And we get to watch David uh, stumble and sin pretty dramatically on a couple fronts, um, but also pursue the Lord pretty dramatically on some other fronts. And so David is multifaceted, uh, which is good for us because most of us, are three-dimensional. Most of us are multifaceted as well. Um, And the Bible holds David up as a man after God's own heart. So there's room for us in the kingdom of God, just because, just like there's room for David. But anyways, so 2 Samuel chapter 11, um, we're going to just, we're going to go through it briefly because I want to get to chapter 24 tonight. But um, you really can't talk about David's life in summary without mentioning David and Bathsheba. Because really, it's the pivot of David's life. David is super faithful. He's serving the Lord super radically. He goes through a lot of tribulation between when he becomes anointed king and when he becomes crowned king. He has to flee from King Saul for about 10 years. And then he becomes king. And, you know, there's a couple of hiccups along the way. But overall, David's still moving powerfully. He's with the Lord. He's seeking advice from the Lord. The Lord's given him peace on every side. Um, you know, incredible numbers of his enemies are now surrendered to him. David is really the most powerful man in the region by a long shot. But in chapter 11, David's starting to get to middle age. And it says, in the time, in the spring, chapter 11, verse 1, at the time when the kings go out to battle... That David sent Joab, his general, and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. So David's got a job to do, and he decides to pass it off because he's an authority. You know, he can delegate. And um, so, you know, we'll make a very long, sticky story a little shorter and a little less stickier. Um, David winds up getting the lady next door pregnant. He's trying to then cover up for that, so he gets her husband murdered, and then he marries her, and figures that'll take care of everything. And, um, and David gets away with it uh, on paper, right? That's, that's the interesting thing about David's story, is David comes up with this incredible scheme to cover up for his sin, and as far as anybody could tell, it works. But at the end of chapter 11, it says, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Right? And so if the story of David and Bathsheba is anything, it's a commentary on sin in our lives. Right? And for all of us, for all of us, um, there are plenty of times when we get away with our sin on a physical level. Um, but that does not change the reality that the Lord sees it. And so, you know, and honestly, in some ways that's a comfort. 
right? Because if the Lord is seeing what we're doing, then there's a level of accountability that isn't based on um, how good our motives are, isn't based on how smart we are or how foolish the person that we're trying to outsmart is. And it's also a little bit of a comfort uh, in the world system. You know, there are people committing evil all around the world. And sometimes we can say, wow, that seems so unfair that, you know, these evil rulers or these evil people are living so long and it's, you know, they're, they're just going on and on and on. It's like they have extra decades added to their life to sin. And yet it's still in the sight of the Lord. The Lord is seeing it. And so it's not our problem. But in David's case, David does this thing. It's displeasing in the sight of the Lord. It's evil in the sight of the Lord. And in chapter 12, the prophet Nathan comes and he really rebukes David for his sin. He kind of catches David in a word picture where he says, you know, hey, if this situation happened, what would you do? And David said, well, I would judge it just like this. And Nathan says, you're right. That's how it should be judged. By the way, you're the guy. And, um, and it's really interesting right there, right in that moment when Nathan totally just drops the ball on David. David, in that moment, for all of his sin and for just as incredibly sinful as he was in that moment, David has a line that stands out that totally distinguishes him from Saul, his predecessor. So, um, chapter 12, verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Period. Right? David gets confronted with his sin, and his response is, you're right, I sinned. And if you contrast that, in particular, if you go to 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul commits a sin that... Um, the Lord took pretty seriously. Saul was commanded to go destroy a people group who were uh, very destructive to Israel. And the Lord wanted them taken out. And Saul did not. Saul did it his way. But in uh, chapter 15, verse 24, Saul gets confronted with his sin. It's, it's really, it's a very similar scenario. A prophet comes from the Lord to Saul, just like Nathan came from the Lord to David. In chapter 24, then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned, I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Right? Saul says, you're right, you're right, I did. Let's now, let's just, let's move forward. Life lesson learned. Let's keep going, right? Any other questions? And then in verse 30, same things. Saul said, uh, verse 30, then he said, I've sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God, right? Saul says, okay, I've sinned. Now can we just move on? Can we, can we, you know, okay, we got that. I, you know, I failed that report card, but whatever, let's, let's just move on. You know, let's fresh page, right? The Lord's mercies are new every morning, right? Grace, buddy, grace. And Saul does this whole thing and David gets confronted with his sin and David says, I have sinned. Right? And what's interesting, too, is, you know, Saul actually had less grounds for excuse than David did. Because the Lord gave Saul a command, and he said, you go do this. Saul's the king. He's a monarch uh, in a world where monarchs didn't really have any restraints on power. So it wasn't like he had to, you know, get approval from parliament or Congress or whoever. Saul could do whatever he jolly well wanted. So Saul goes out and doesn't kill all the people that the Lord told him to kill. And Saul says, you know, I was just, I was afraid of the people and, you know, trying to be a nice guy. Saul's got all these excuses that are pretty pathetically lame. David, honestly, David could pull some pretty good excuses if he wanted to. Okay. Jo David had Joab, the general of his army, um, help him out in this. 
David had a partner in crime, a guy who helped murder an innocent man. And without getting too graphic, Bathsheba was not exactly innocent herself, right? Bathsheba, you know, um, if your husband's out of town and you happen to live next door to the king and you know that the, the king is in town and your husband's out of town, you can plan appropriately for that, you know? Uh, Bathsheba's not an innocent party here. And so David's got, there's a couple things at play here that David could blame his sin on, you know? And, you know, I was tempted and she was pushing it and it was kind of, you know, kind of just happened. Well, no, no, and David doesn't do any of that. David is willing to stop at, I have sinned against the Lord. And that, you know, and I'm, I'm talking to myself as much as any of us right now, but that is really in a lot of ways what sets David apart as a man after God's own heart. David does not play games with God, right? David pursues the Lord, David sins. David's still human, he still has a sin nature. But when David comes to grips with something, David's not playing games. And when David's got a deal with an enemy, David's going to deal with it. When David has to deal with his sin, David's going to deal with it. And, you know, there's a lot to avoid in David's life. But David was a guy who knew how to appreciate in the moment, I just sinned against the Lord. And that's a serious offense. So, so that's, you know, so we're going to kind of keep moving. So you could keep going off on this theme. Okay. But overall that sets the stage for really the rest of David's life. And so it is tragic. Nate, you know, David at this point is thinking, okay, is the Lord going to kill me? Because that would be a, by the law, that's a fair judgment, right? And so David just stops. He's like, okay, what happens next? And Nathan says, all right, the Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, there's going to be consequences, right? And, you know, that's the thing. God's grace can cover any situation, but that does not remove the consequences of bad choices. And so, you know, for all of us, we are free to make whatever choice we want to make in life. We are free to do that. We are not free to decide the consequences. Consequences happen outside of our control. And so, you know, we can say, as Christians, you know, if you want to, you could try and say, well, if, you know, where sin abounds, grace abounds, so let's just sin a lot, and God's grace will cover it all. And in theory, that's right. But Paul said, perish the thought, or may it never be. Because among other things, you're going to invite long-term consequences into your life. And David does that here. David, starting at this point, it's really, it's, it's now just like a long, slow slide downhill for David, right? I mean, he still loves the Lord and the Lord still uses them in some ways, but you just see, it's like David had his legs cut out from under him, right? David is just nowhere near the man he once was because of this. This is the turning point in David's life. And so, one of the consequences is the Lord said, the sword's not going to depart from your house. There's going to be violence in your home indefinitely. And we see that in David's family. Um, and, you know, we'll be skimming through it, but David's got this just messed up, whacked out family. Okay, one son violates a half-sister, and then another brother kills that son to take on the role of judgment, and then that son tries to become king, and then he gets killed, and then another son is going to later on try and take the throne, and he's going to get killed, and it's just this nonstop thing. And we, also, and we see in here also a couple different references where it says David doesn't correct his kids. For all of his highlights, David does not discipline his children, right? And there's a lot of 
there's a lot of push culturally to say, don't ever discipline your children. And I'm not a parent, but I'm a child who received discipline, right? I was on the receiving end and I'm darn glad for it, right? I mean, I gave my parents a run for their money in some areas and I'm appreciative of the punishments I got because they impacted me, actually. Impact is kind of a good word for that. Um, but, you know, David never rebukes his kids. And there's this idea that you're somehow, it's more liberating in our culture to never rebuke someone. But truthfully, it's not. And I, I liked, I was reading a thing a couple weeks ago where a lady was talking. And she said, you know, if you have this idea that there's no right or no wrong, then it's almost like you're a kid lost in an infinitely big yard. And after a while, it'd be nice if there was at least a fence somewhere. And then you could tell, you'd at least have a reference point, right? On this side of the fence, good. That side of the fence, bad. If you have no fence, then you're just lost. You're wandering. And there is no end point. There's no trigger point. There's really no stopping where you'll go. And so boundaries are good things. Fences are good things. The Lord gives them to us. The Lord instructs parents to give them to children. The Lord likes fences for very good reasons because fences keep us off of cliffs, right? So we see that, unfortunately, in David's life, but it's part of the ripple effect where, again, David gets his legs cut out from under him in a lot of ways, right? David now feels unworthy and inadequate, and he's like, you know what? All this is just consequence of my sin, so he kind of just throws his hands up in the air and says, well, I guess the Lord will have to work it out, and I'm, I'm out of commission on this one, so. But, so he just kind of, he kind of dumps that job on the Lord, and he's really just failing in his responsibility in that area. But as that happens, as we're, as we're kind of moving through David's life, there's, there's still some highlights towards the end of 2 Samuel. But chapter 24, we get to see, um, we're going to probably park here for most of the rest of the night. Um, but we get to see a, a fairly big mistake of David's. But we also get to see some incredible responses on David's part. And really, that's, that's David's life in a nutshell. As there's a lot of ups and a lot of downs, and you got to take them all um, to appreciate David. Okay, so we're going to try and take a little bit of both. So, chapter 24. Now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. So David, he commands this census. And he says, it tells Joab, his commander, <clears throat> I want you to go count the people. Now, we'll get to it in a minute, but it's important to notice that it says the Lord's anger burned against Israel. So, there's going to be some consequences that we're going to watch here in a second, but they're not exclusively David's fault. So, this story is a little bit weird in terms of, you know, David ordered a census and the Lord is displeased with that. But, you know, the Lord had ordered censuses in other parts. So, it's very much, it's specific to David's pride, but it's also specific as a response to something going on in the nation of Israel. So, um, so don't think of this as exclusively, you know, David's the perpetrator and everyone else is the victim. There's plenty of uh, sin to go around here in this story. But just be aware of that. David commands this census. And his general Joab uh, actually has like his one great moment of insight. And he says, why do you need a census? He says, you know what? God can make more people, but you really have no need to know how big your nation is. You have no need to know how big your army is. It's really none of your business. Uh, let the Lord take care of it. Right? It's like the one good thing Joab says in the entire Bible. Um, and David's, but David's king, right? And we said earlier, he's an absolute monarch. So he says, no, go. And Joab says, okay, well, what the heck? 
So uh, Joab, uh, in verse 4, goes out, and he goes out to register the people, and then it says, uh, let's see, at the end of nine months and 20 days, they finished counting. And there were uh, 800,000 men in Israel who drew the sword, and there were 500,000 men in Judah. So the nation's pretty big. It's a pretty good sum. I mean, that's you know, the number of fit warriors. That's a pretty good-sized population, uh, especially in the ancient world. So David goes through, Joab goes through, and he counts, and he, it says in here that he, he skips a couple places because he hates this job so much, and he thinks it's a bad idea. So he's kind of, you know, glossing over a little bit. But anyways, he takes a census. And then in verse 10, now David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted foolishly. So David, again, he acknowledges his sin, and he asks for mercy. He doesn't ask for mercy on the basis of his good works. He asks for mercy on the basis of God's goodness, right? He does not say, God, please forgive me because I feel bad. He says, God, forgive me because I was stupid, right? I'm asking for your mercy because that's all I have to ask for, right? I have no merit to ask for this, but I'm asking because you're God, and I'm, I would like to trust in your goodness. So then the prophet uh, Gad, it comes to him. When David arose, verse 11, when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer or prophet, saying, go and speak to David. Thus the Lord says, I'm offering you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I will do to you. So, and the Lord tells David, again, you know, there's forgiveness, but there's consequences. The Lord says there's consequences for this. But the Lord's also being incredibly fair here. He says, I'm, there's going to be a consequence, but I'll give you three options. And you can pick which one you want. Uh, verse 13, Gad comes to David and he says, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and see what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So interestingly, you know, coming out of this, David had just had to deal with a big insurrection in his kingdom. So he'd already fled from men somewhat recently, somewhat fresh in his memory. Um, a couple of chapters before this, there had been a famine. So David's got famine kind of fresh in his mind. So he's got both of those are a little bit vivid. He says, you know what? I'm really not in the mood to get chased around by men, right? And if the Lord's going to be the one punishing me, I'd be happy for it to be just the Lord punishing me because I will trust that in the Lord's mercy that he won't overdo it and he won't underdo it. And if I deserve a consequence, I'll take what the Lord has to offer. Thank you very much. So, um, so verse 15 says, So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. So an angel of the Lord goes out and just is working top to bottom. The entire nation, people are dying. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, it is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So the angels, you know, don't ever under, we talked, whatever it was last week or the week before about demonic forces in the world. And you know, they're real and they're powerful, but don't give them more credit than they deserve. Well, angelic forces are uh, just as real and more powerful, right? This angel is about to wipe Jerusalem out, the whole city. And the Lord says, no, take a break. You're good for the day. And so, so don't ever underestimate what 
you know, and then think about this. This is an unnamed angel, right? What is, this is, this is some angel, right? Uh, when the Lord takes out 185,000 Assyrians. We just read about this in Isaiah. It's an angel, right? What happens when it's Michael? And he says, I've been fighting for three weeks with the prince of Persia. What does that look like, right? How much more so, what does the spirit of God look like when we're talking about power, right? We can put a lot of, we can put a lot of stock in how strong the world system is. But if we stop and think about, this is the unnamed guy, right? How much more the spirit of God working, right? So don't ever get discouraged about what's going on in the spiritual world, right? We have responsibility, pray, you know, stand firm in the faith and all of that. But there's plenty of power out there. God is fully in control of the situation. Um, but this angel somehow uh, becomes visible to David. So it says, verse 17, Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking down the people. And he said, Behold, it's I who have sinned, and it is I who have done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Now, in the beginning of the chapter, it said the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel. So Israel is at least partially complicit in this in this sin, or for some reason or another, Israel needs to be judged. But David, as he's looking at consequence of sin, does not say, God, we are blowing it. Would you please forgive us? He says, God, I have sinned, right? David is not trying to place the blame anywhere else. David has a relationship between him and the Lord, and David is focused on where is his relationship with the Lord, right? David is focused on, okay, not what do they need to do. He's focused on what do I need to do in this moment, right? What is the Lord calling me to do? Okay, how do I respond in obedience? So uh, verse 18, this guy Gad keeps showing up in this chapter. So Gad came to David that day and said to him, go up and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Uh, parenthetically, some of your translations might say Ornan. It's the same guy, it's just a different translation. Uh, Aruna the Jebusite. So verse 19, David went up according to the word of Gad, just as the Lord had commanded, right? So bear in mind, David says, God, what do you want me to do? The Lord says, I want you to go up and offer a sacrifice. So David went up to offer a sacrifice. David is willing to take a, Lord, give me one step and then obey. And then the Lord can give me the next step. And then he obeys, right? David is okay one step at a time following the Lord in obedience, um, so verse 20, Aruna or Ornan looked down and saw the king and his servants crossing over toward him. And Aruna went out and bowed his face to the ground before the king. So this guy's just working his field and sees the king and an entourage coming up to him. So he goes over to say, hey. And verse 21, then Aruna said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be held back from the people. So he says, can I help you, Mr. King, sir? And David says, yes, I'd like to buy everything right here. I want to buy the property. I want to buy the cattle. I want to buy the grain. I want to basically name your price. I'm buying. And verse 22, Aruna said to David, let my Lord, the King take and offer up what is goodness sight. Look, the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sludges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood, everything, O King, Aruna gives to the King. And Aruna said to the King, may the Lord, your God accept you. So this guy you know, he's no doubt aware of the plague. David says, I need to offer this to stop the plague. He says, you know what? Just take it, right? This is a gift from me to you, to the Lord. I'm happy to just let you have it and I'll let you do your thing, okay? But verse 
24. If you ever want to remember a good verse, this is chapter 24, verse 24. That was totally a Dad Murphy moment, wasn't it? Right? Right? Two, four, two, four. Because see, there's two twos. And if you multiply them or square them, you get four. So it's 24, 24. All right. Now, uh, verse 24. However, the king said to Aruna, No. But I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Thus the Lord was moved by prayer for the land, and the plague was held back from Israel. So David has an opportunity right here to give a sacrifice to the Lord. And what's interesting is the sacrifice he was offered and the sacrifice he wound up giving were the exact same thing. But David, in the integrity of his heart right in this moment, says, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. He buys the land, he buys the ox, and he pays the guy for everything that's up there on that hill. Okay? He offers up the exact same thing. But David was not going to offer something to the Lord that cost him nothing. And so if there is an application right there, it's that it's really straightforward. And that's the beautiful thing about the Bible. Okay. So what should be the application for us? Well, let's not offer offerings to the Lord, our God, which cost us nothing. Right. I mean, you think about it um, in American consumerism, we love free stuff, right? If you're ever at a, at an event of some sort, right? Everybody's got free stuff. There's free pens, there's free candy, there's free, you know, whatever business cards or Little knickknacks. If it's a music show, there's free guitar picks everywhere, right? Um, we love getting free stuff. And, and you, know, you get a free stuff, you go home from the show, somebody says, did you get me anything? You say, um, guitar pick. Yes, there you go, right? We love getting something for free and then getting rid of it for free. And we say, that was great. It was a net loss of zero and I made them happy and they think I'm great, right? It didn't cost me anything. It was such a good deal, right? But David says, no, I am not going to offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. And so for each of us in our life, we have to ask ourselves, are we offering to the Lord that which cost us nothing, right? Are we trying to offer to the Lord without it actually being a sacrifice, Right? Are we trying to give to the Lord in whatever measure that may be, whether it's time, energy, money, devotion, whatever? Are we trying to give to the Lord in a way that doesn't really impact our cushion? Right? Are we trying to give to the Lord in a way that lets us still keep all of our comforts? And here's the thing, too. This is, okay, so this is the part where it's really easy to lay a guilt trip, right? Like, I could, you could do this so easily, right? Like, there's so many great examples, but I don't want to use them all because then it would still feel like I'm laying a guilt trip. But it would be easy at this point for me to say, here's what should cost you, right? It'd be easy for me to say, serving the Lord for you ought to cost you something. Therefore, you should contribute to the Lord this. Whether it's you should, you know, show up for church this many times. You should give this much money. You should do whatever. You should do this. But here's the thing. I can't determine that for you. And you can't determine that for me. Each one of us has to determine this in the integrity of our own hearts. Right? We have to ask ourselves. I have to ask Nate. I don't have to ask Larry. Larry, are you giving to the Lord that which costs you nothing? Because that is none of my business. 
right? I have to ask Nate, am I offering to the Lord that which costs me nothing? And this becomes a theme throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament especially. Um, and in a lot of ways, the, the go-to reference for this, in my mind, is in the book of Malachi. And in the book of Malachi, chapter 1, the Lord is rebuking the people for their hypocrisy. And he says, but when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? So the Lord's rebuking the people here in the book of Malachi. And he says, tell you what, you keep offering me your lame sacrifices, your one-offs, right? Why don't you just go give those to your human governor and just see what he thinks, right? You keep offering to me and I'm God. So why don't you just offer it to a dorky governor? And the theme in Malachi, and Malachi sums this up so well in chapter 1, verse 14. He says, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, right? And so often we want to offer to the Lord that which cost us nothing because we have totally lost sight of the perspective of who God is, right? It's so easy for us to say, well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go there. I don't want to offer to help with that because that will inconvenience me. And who cares if it inconveniences you? The point is not our convenience. The point is offering to the Lord. And the Lord is not interested, really, in sacrifices that cost us nothing. And we see this again in the New Testament, right? There's the widow with her two mites at the, at the temple. She puts in basically nothing, right? It's, uh, I don't even think, truthfully, I don't even think in our currency we have an equivalent of it. Um, but basically nothing in terms of spare change. And there's all these other guys bringing in, you know, piles of money. And Jesus is sitting there with his disciples, and he says, you see that little lady? She just put in more than everybody else. And they're like, um, no, she didn't. And he says, yes, she did. Because everybody else is putting in their extra. And she put in what actually cost her something. That's what she was going to eat with. That's her sustenance. These people are putting in their leftovers. Right? God is not a God who's interested in leftovers in our lives. God is interested in being first and foremost the priority at every point in our life. And so we have to ask ourselves, honestly, where does that, how do we fall into that? How do we respond to that? And here's the caveat, though. All right? It's easy at this point. The problem with any time you get to a passage like this is that usually people who ought to feel convicted don't, and the people who shouldn't feel convicted do. It's just kind of, it's just kind of a rule of church, right? So, so here's the caveat that has to then be brought in to clarify. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, for my, burden is, my yoke is easy and my burden's light. It says in the New Testament, the commands of the Lord are not burdensome. Okay, so where's the balance there? Because it's supposed to cost us something. Serving the Lord is supposed to cost us something. But Jesus says, hey man, it's easy. Right? This isn't a burden. So where's the balance? Well, the balance is in the book of Nehemiah, it says the joy of the Lord is our strength. Okay? If we are serving the Lord and we are distracted or bummed out about how much of a sacrifice this is, then at that point, Oh, we're serving the Lord, but we're not really serving the Lord. We're serving that feeling of trying to feel spiritual by serving the Lord. Okay, we see this in the New Testament with Mary and Martha. 
Mary is listening to Jesus. Martha is working in the kitchen. She is making food for God, right? Martha is serving the Lord and she gets distracted and she loses her temper. And Jesus tells her, he says, you're distracted with much serving. So is serving the Lord good? Yes. Should, uh, should our service to the Lord cost us something? Yes. Does the Lord want sacrifice? Right? Does the Lord want our devotion at the expense of other things in our life? Yes. But here's the flip side. Okay? Jesus said, abide in me. He who abides in me bears much fruit. So the only way we can bear fruit is to just be like resting in Jesus, fellowshipping with Jesus. So it has to require a total mindset change where we go, and, and it's, it's only doable in the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm convinced, because we have to have this blend of, I want to sacrifice for the Lord, but I have so much joy in the presence of God, so much joy and fulfillment from resting with God, from fellowshipping with the Lord, that it's not a burden. It's a sacrifice that doesn't feel like a sacrifice. Okay? Now notice, I, it's about the joy of the Lord. It does not say happiness. Okay? The book of Philippians is all about joy. It's also all about the fact that Paul is in prison, constantly chained up. Right? But it's one of the most joyful letters in the whole Bible. So Paul is serving the Lord. It's costing him something. It's costing him his freedom. Right? But Paul, writing this letter, says, guys, you're not going to believe this. My circumstances have turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. And as he's wrapping up his letter, he says, you know, hey, all the guards say hello. Uh, Caesar's, you know, servants are saying, hey, they just want to make sure I wrote their names in here too. Like, Paul's got, he's sacrificing, right? But it's not burdensome. And again, this is where I can't tell you what your sacrifice to the Lord has to be because the Lord has given each of us a calling of some sort, a ministry opportunity of some sort where we truly can sacrifice to him, but we can also find total fulfillment and rest and we can totally abide in Christ in that moment, in that calling or that ministry opportunity in a way that's not burdensome. So it doesn't mean it will be easy. No, Paul in Philippians is chained up. Okay, that's not the definition of fun. Paul is chained up to a Roman guard 24 hours a day for something he didn't do. Okay, it does not mean that life will be easy. It does not mean that life will make us happy. It does not mean that circumstances will be what we want them to be. But what it means is that like Paul will be able to say, I want you to know that my circumstances have turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. It means that we can, like David, say, I'm not going to offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. And we still offer the same thing, right? David offers the same thing that he would have offered if he hadn't cost him anything. So the Lord is not interested in the amount. The Lord isn't interested in the number or the sweat equity or whatever you want to call it. The Lord's interested in the heart behind it. The Lord is interested in, are you focused on wanting to have this blend of attitude here? Do you want to be able to sacrifice to the Lord and abide in the Spirit in a way that unites those two? Okay, it's like James talks about through his whole book, book of James. You know, faith without works is dead. You say you've got 
Faith without works, I say, show me your faith by your works, right? It's this whole blend of like, well, which is it? You know, am I, do I believe in God or do I work? And he's like, you know what? If you really believe in God, you're going to do stuff. So just do the stuff, right? Just prove it. And it's that same idea. We get to walk in sacrifice and walk in joy. So you know what? Yeah, 2020 was a rough year. 2021, I think it's looking up a little bit, but <clears throat> who cares, Right? If it gets worse, if, I mean, if everything falls to pieces and we all die or go to jail or whatever, whatever is going to happen, it depends on who you read, right? Something bad is going to happen. We're all going to lose, according to the news. It doesn't matter who you read. We're all losing. Um, but if that all happens, we still get a sacrifice to the Lord. And we still get to have fullness of joy because the circumstances don't define us. Circumstances can impact whether or not you're happy. The Spirit of God impacts whether or not you're joyful. Right? So each one of us, if I could encourage all of us, and I'm, and I'm, believe me, I'm trying to do this myself. I'm trying to really sort through this personally this week and just ask the Lord, are there, am I trying to offer you my life uh, at zero cost to me? Right? Are there things I should be offering to you that would cost me something? Are there things that I'm doing really just to look spiritual that I should just drop? Right? What are those things? And I can't tell you what they are. Because you're going to have to ask the Lord personally. Um, you know, if you have real questions, there's, there's plenty of good biblical answers. There's a lot of good starting points, right? If you want to sacrifice to the Lord, my advice would be start with your time and start by reading the word. Uh, if you want to go further than that, I'd say start with your time and start, you know, just be faithful in church and don't see church as a job. See it as an opportunity, right? Oh, you know, all of a sudden it's not just a sacrifice. It's a, I could bless God's people. I could, you know, I can encourage the saints. I can pray for people. Oh man, this is fantastic, right? If you want to go from there, go back to the word, keep reading and ask the Lord to show you what's next. And he'll do it. If you ask, you know, it says, let him who lacks wisdom ask and the Lord will give it. So if you want to know, if you want to ask the Lord, honestly, God, is there something that I need to be doing, something I need to be sacrificing? The Lord will show you. Don't worry about that. The Lord will answer your prayer. And he is, he'll reveal it. And, um, and I can say it with total confidence. The Lord is very good at exposing our flesh when we ask him to. Right? He's very good at that. And he's also very good at giving us his Holy Spirit when we ask. So, so why not? Right? Why not sacrifice to the Lord and watch him transform that into unbelievable joy, regardless of the circumstances. So that wraps us up. Next week's going to be First Kings. We're going to get to watch a bunch of different characters. It's like David just split up into different chapters. So there's good guys, bad guys, good guys, bad guys, good guys, bad guys, bad guys, bad guys. It's kind of a, you know, it's a long, slow spiral. But, um, but there's still a ton of life lessons. There's still a ton of direct application for our lives. We get to watch some amazing things. Uh, we get to watch God do some amazing things. And uh, it's a fantastic portion of the scriptures. So dear God, we pray that you would just speak to each one of us. And Lord, uh, we do want to have that balance of sacrificing to you, but also taking your yoke upon us. So God, we don't want to walk in guilt and condemnation. We want to walk in freedom. We want to walk in your joy and your light and your love. God, just please do that work in our, Holy, in, in our hearts through your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would just be glorified in our midst. God, have your way with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.